Welcome to the Outdoor Feast by Modern Carnivore. If you're new to hunting, fishing, or foraging, we welcome you to the conversation. Get ready for stories and insights that start in the Northeast, but range to the South, Far West, and wide open spaces in between. Now, here's your host, Todd Waldron. All right. Uh, Welcome back to the Outdoor Feast podcast. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. This is Todd here. And this week, we have a great conversation with Michael Nadusky from Rough Grouse Society. Uh, We have been talking about upland hunting and grouse hunting here on the Modern Carnivore platform. If you haven't checked out the Grouse Camp Parts 1 and 2 episodes over on Mark's uh, Modern Carnivore podcast, check that out. And and in this conversation, we're going to be talking about bird dogs with Mike. We're going to be talking about hunting in the southeast and midwest and mike's just got a whole bunch of information to share uh, about uh, tips for bird dogs and getting a dog and hunting and i think you're going to like this conversation before we get into it though uh mark is here with me today mark how are you doing well todd great and so uh what's happening over in minnesota these days so you i think you're getting ready for deer camp right yeah, it's uh I'm going to be heading up here and and try to settle in, get my get my stand up and uh it's it's really warm though. It's uh it's been really warm the last few days after a really cold October. Now our November is really warm, maybe slowing the deer down a little bit, but uh looking forward to getting out in the woods. It's it's such a great time of year. Yeah, so the the rut over here in the northeast is just starting to ramp up. Um, it was a warm start. The season in New York starts upstate um, around the third weekend of October. So we're heading into the third week of rifle season here, and it only gets better from now to Thanksgiving. So the weather's getting cooler, the deer are starting to move during the day, and it's a, it's a really exciting time uh, to be out. And, you know, any time over the next several weeks is good. Um, so if you have time off, it doesn't have to be on a particular day, just whenever you can get out, if you have a window, um, get out there and enjoy the outdoors. Uh, I'm pretty excited. I'm heading over to Western Maine here next week. I've, I've not hunted the mountains of Western Maine. It's a similar landscape to the Adirondacks, uh, but it's also just kind of a change of scenery. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited about heading over there. Should be a fun trip. Yeah, I've never been up into Maine and uh, I can't wait to hear about your hunt, how it goes, and then maybe, uh, have us plan a trip up there sometime to to do a hunt. That sounds great. We have to put that on the radar. And the neat thing tying this back to upland hunting is that there's also great rough grouse hunting in Western Maine. You know, the habitat is perfect. Um, there's working forest landscapes. Um, there's lands that um, have the habitat structure that Mike's going to be talking about in this coming podcast. And so uh, I think I'm going to take my shotgun, pick up a small game license, bring my vest, and, um, you know, I'll try to wrap in some grouse hunting while I'm over there for a few days. Should be fun. Uh, so, yeah, I, I just uh, I want to thank Mike Nadusky for being on the podcast this week. Uh, Mike has so much insight about bird dogs and bird hunting and geographically You know, he has uh, lived both up in the Midwest and Wisconsin. He hunts a lot in Minnesota. So his range is really pretty impressive. And he's also really gracious about sharing a lot of knowledge about both dogs and grouse hunting and what it's like. Um, He brings an interesting perspective because I think that for most people, 
when we think of grouse hunting, we think about the upper Midwest and maybe into the Northeast, but you know, it's pretty exciting to listen to Mike talk about hunting birds in the Southern Appalachians. Uh, that's, that's something that's might not be on people's radars, but I think that you're really going to like this conversation um, as it unfolds. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm just fascinated with with upland hunting down in that area and what it's like. I know nothing about it. I'm always up hunting up north uh, when it comes to upland for the most part. And, uh, and so I can't wait to hear this conversation. Mike's a great guy and his experience with both NAVDA and then taking on this new position at Rough Grouse Society is, is really great. So um, I think it's awesome that you got him on. Yeah. So let's just get into it. Folks, I appreciate you listening. Thanks for joining us. And just let us know what you think and get outdoors, be safe and have fun. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining the podcast again. Hope everybody's well at this week. I'm talking with Mike Nadusky from the Rough Grouse Society. And I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Mike's the director of regional development in the Southeast for the Rough Grouse Society, which is a whole conversation in itself. And yeah, Mike, how are you doing this morning? Excellent, Todd. I, I, it's a rainy Thursday here, but we, you and I were just talking about the cooler temperatures and how excited we are for that. And I, I can't wait. And, and also, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I've been looking forward to it. You're quite welcome. And uh, this is going to be a great conversation. And so you, you're in North Carolina. Um, you've spent some time living in the upper Midwest and you're from the Northeast. And we were just having a conversation before we started recording uh, you you were just up in uh, Minnesota. What was it this past weekend? Yeah, yeah, I was up um, near Malacca at the Four Brooks Wildlife Management Area. Uh, I'm uh, really involved in the North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association, or NAVDA for short. I'm actually a judge for the organization, so I was up there for the weekend judging dogs, which is uh, one of my favorite ways to spend spend weekends when hunting season's not in. Uh, and it was a, it was a great weekend. Um, a little bit a little rainy on Saturday, but cool temperatures and, and really just, just perfect days to cut a dog loose and walk along and, and see what we can find. Yeah. Grouse season's around the corner here. It's coming up uh, this weekend up in Minnesota. So such a great grouse hunting legacy up there, that area. So that's really cool. There's a lot to talk about with NAVDA here too. And so just backing up a little bit, tell us a little bit about your your background. And uh, first, I want to congratulate you on your recent position with the Rough Grouse Society. That's just phenomenal. It's so awesome. So congratulations there. Thank you. Uh, it's, I've been in the role for a month and a half now, and it's still uh, very surreal for me. It's, 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 I'll kind of get how I got here. So I grew up in the Northeast in uh, Massachusetts and Connecticut. I grew up at a, a diehard Woolrich, Vermont, uh, Massachusetts and Connecticut deer hunter. Um, I grew up on a farm there, and really that was my my love and my passion um, all through my teens. And even when I was in college, I sort of lived to come home for Thanksgiving break. And I I would joke that I spent way more time in the woods than I did with family <laughs> over those breaks, um, you know, chasing whitetails. And that's that's what I loved. And then I went to college in the Midwest in uh, Milwaukee, uh, Marquette University. Uh, and, and really love the Midwest. And I look back now and I go, man, what were you doing? Like, I hunted a little bit in college, but I was like, what? You were wasting a whole lot of time, like, going to <laughs> class and, and, you know, campus activities and those types of things and not spending time outside. Um, but I, I really, um, I kind of took time off in college. I hunted a little bit, like I said, and fished some with fraternity brothers and buddies, but, but didn't really lean into it. Uh, left there and went to grad school at Clemson University in South Carolina. And worked in higher ed. I uh, was the educational administrator 
uh, working with college students who made poor life choices. Um, and they usually came to me when I needed to send them home from the institution. So really poor life choices. And, um, and that sort of took me to, to a variety of places to St. Louis and then, then back up to Mo the Milwaukee area. Um, but when I was living in St. Louis, life circumstances worked out where I could get a dog. And I, um, I had read an outdoor life article on different bird dog breeds when I was a kid and I had learned about German wire hairs and, and I just was like, that thing looks really cool and it can do a ton of stuff. And I, what really piqued my interest was that they had blood tracks. And so when the time came for me to get a dog, I bought a German wire hair because I would teach it to blood track. And then breeder of that dog took me out training and he introduced me to one of his dogs that was a completely trained bird dog. And I have been a bird dog nut ever since. And that's a roundabout way. I, I, that took me to grouse hunting and that took me to working with, with the Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society um, for the, in the short of it. That is so cool. That's such a great story and such a great path. And uh, the wire hairs are, I mean, they're so beautiful. They're such great dogs. And, you know, so I'm a lifelong deer hunter. Same same kind of story coming from the Northeast. But lately, I have just been getting such a big itch for upland hunting and grouse hunting. And there's great grouse hunting up here. But, you know, we've had dogs my whole life, but I've had like rabbit dogs, like beagles and, and home mm -hmm. dogs. But I was reading uh, Keith Crowley's Pheasant Dogs book recently, which is a beautiful kind of compilation of just different stories, different people and their dogs. And I am soon to go down that rabbit hole, Mike. It's like... <laughs> Excellent. I yeah. look forward to it. Yeah, it's cool. And uh, my wife was also in um, higher ed, by the way, in uh, college administration in the Northeast, actually. She she worked at um, Castleton in, in Southern Vermont. And actually, when her and I met, uh, she was working at Smith College in Northampton, Mass. So she did that for, for many years as well. So I hear what you're saying about working with students that need help and trying to keep them on track and trying to give them the resources they need to, you know, have some skills. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. So what, uh, like with NAVDA, you, you know, you were up there this weekend judging dogs. How did you go from just being a bird dog nut to actually judging? What was that journey like for you? Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a great question. So, you know, so I got this puppy and um, and I'm kind of an input nut. I, I like to read a lot and learn a lot. And um, so I bought a bunch of books and reading a bunch of stuff online and I discovered NAVDA and um, thankfully, there was a chapter right near me, and I mentioned my breeder. So, so I get this this puppy from the the owner of the female, and then about two weeks later, uh, the owner of the male calls me out of the blue and says, "Hey, I heard you have a puppy of mine. I would love to meet you and the puppy. I live like five minutes from you." And I was like, "All right, cool." And he's like, "All right, I'll pick you up at five thirty tomorrow morning." And I'm like, "Sweet." <laughs> yep. And uh, and so he we get there and, and get set up and he's like, all right, this is what I'm going to do. And this is what I need you to do working on some bird work. And so he gets birds out and he hands me his shotgun and he goes, can you shoot? And I'm like, yeah. And in my head, I'm going, it's been a long time since I've shot sporting clays, but all right, we'll, <laughs> we'll make this work. And, uh, and he brings his, this four year old wire hair out. Um, that's completely steady to wing shot and fall. So what that means is that once the dog goes on point, it doesn't move until you tell the dog to do something else. He walks in front of the dog and this bird gets up and I shoot it. Dog's standing there and looks at him and he sends the dog to retrieve and it brings him right, you know, right to his lap and lets it go when he says and we keep hunting. And I, and I looked at him and I'm like, you're telling me my dog can do all of these things? So <laughs> it, it, it came out yeah. of that and it's, it's that. Like, what? 
uh, <laughs> and that, that and what he was, he was training for the NAVDA Invitational, which is really our, our pinnacle level test. It's the finished, the finished dogs of the finished dogs, really the, the top 1%. So you have to qualify in another test to even get there. And uh, so he was training for that. It was a very high level. And that was really my introduction to it. And then it was, you know, what, when are you training again? How can I help? And I, I've always sort of come to new things that way. Like my best path to education and getting involved is to ask how I can help. And so I just sort of became the, I will come and be out in the swamp in the, in a kayak or plant birds or, you know, shoot or whatever. And, and that was really my introduction and got to meet a bunch of the folks in the chapter and started volunteering. And then um, I met really was my bird dog mentor today, a guy named Roy Ames in Wisconsin, and is also an avid judge. I met him in Missouri. He had come down to judge uh, really the the last sort of test before I moved up to Wisconsin. And he obviously lived there and said, hey, here's my phone number. Call me when you get there. And I got settled and, and went over there to start training. And we were sitting at a test one day and I on a tailgate watching what was going on. And I said, like, what's it take to judge and what do I got to do? And he kind of gave me the rundown. And. NAVDA has an apprentice judge program. So you actually, on your own dime, you have to go to a bunch of tests, pay your own way, your own travel, um, and enter the, the apprentice program and go through all of that. As an apprentice, you get evaluated to make sure that you're reading dogs correctly, you're applying the rules and scores correctly, um, and that you can interact with handlers in the right way to sort of shepherd them through the test and you know what's going on. That takes uh, anywhere from a year and a half to three years, um, you got to see around 150 dogs um, at least. And you, and like I said, every day you get evaluated. So some days you have good days and some days you have bad days, just like the dog. So I went through that and I became an approved judge about four years ago, uh, which has been a, a neat journey. And actually now when I was in Minnesota, I just entered our acting senior judge program, which is sort of a the judge that leads the day. It really doesn't, my scores don't mean any different and don't have any more weight. I'm really just the person that gets to give remarks and do extra paperwork. So another <laughs> sort of volunteer opportunity. That's really cool. It is, it is a fun trajectory too. It's like, it's amazing how sometimes meeting somebody and then just like offering to help and showing up and like all the fringe benefits and perks associated with that and where that all goes, you know? Like, yeah, just, well, I mean, come on, Tyler, you know? that's, that's how you and I met at Fest. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> here we are, know. you know, seven months later talking on a podcast. <laughs> exactly. I know. I It's like the story of my volunteer conservation life, but it, it's led to so many great friendships and it's just great. It's fun. So with the North American Burstow hunting dogs, are, are there specific dog breeds that qualify for that? Or like, how does that work? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, mm -hmm. So we, we focus on what we call the versatile breeds, but, but specifically versatile pointing dog breeds. And so we have 30 or more breeds now, I believe, off the top of my head. Um, but so, so your German wire hairs, short hairs, Griffons, English pointers, setters, Vishlas, Weimaraners, Brittany Spaniels, kind of runs the gamut. But you're a pointing dog that will track and retrieve, will, will, and will do that in water as well, um, and point. That's, that's really what we're, what we're looking for when you boil it down. Uh, from a, a puppy perspective, we want to see the dog actively search for, search for birds and point them when it finds them, uh, for, more finished dogs we want them to retrieve to hand because really i tell a lot of folks that navda is a conservation organization at its heart um, it may not be the conservation on the front end right the, the habitat and the and in my case the birds but it's it's about when you take that animal that that animal comes back to your hand and put on 
the table. It's a, there really are a conservation tool um, to make sure that we're not wasting resources. Yeah, that's a it's a great way to put it and think about it, Mike. It's their conservation tool, and they add so much to the experience of the hunting and and just there's so much of a yeah, so much of a part of it. And so you you just got a pup recently, right? You have a new pup named Mac. Is that right? I do. Yeah, she. Uh, this, this is funny. I have actually had the opportunity to do one other podcast since I got her, and now I've learned her mo is when I do podcasts, she sleeps and snores very loudly. Uh, she uh, she is in her kennel underneath my desk right now, and she is out cold sawing logs. Um, she is fifteen weeks, I think, tomorrow. Um, so it's funny how fast it goes. So I I actually picked her up on somewhat of a whirlwind tour um, with with COVID and everything. Now I've had to put a bunch of tests on hold and stuff, and so really once stuff opened back up over the summer, uh, I got invited to go judge in Nebraska. And then I had another assignment at a different place in, in Minnesota and then had this puppy in Wisconsin. And so I was like, well, I'm just going to take a giant road trip. So I went to Nebraska <laughs> and judged out there with some friends. And then from there, I went to Wisconsin, picked the puppy up. I used that timing to conveniently find random streams in the driftless area to do some fishing and uh, and then went up to Minnesota and judged. And so she really her introduction to life was the road life for her first really week and a half. And she did did flawlessly and it's it's fascinating like how fast it goes like this morning i just found one of her puppy teeth and i was like i I, when i brought you home you fit you know between you know from my hand to the crook of my elbow and now when i pick you up like i want to put you down because you're heavy so it's uh it's bittersweet but it's i'm so looking forward to my trip to the midwest in a few weeks to to watch those light bulbs come on and and see you know and really just introduce her to the whole point of the thing Oh, yeah, that's so exciting. And uh, gosh, that's cool. And so you're going to the Midwest in a couple of weeks. Where are you heading? Yeah, my grouse camp is always um, in northeast to sort of north central Wisconsin. Uh, we had a, a one particular place that was our camp. Um, but unfortunately, due to the snowpack last year, it collapsed the roof. So we don't we don't have our camp this year per se. But um, we we found a spot to stay and, and booked a week up there. And then before that, I'm going to uh, Minnesota uh, to visit some folks, and I'm going to grouse and woodcock hunt up there, probably do some work for Rough Grouse Society while I'm up there as well. And then um, I'll cut over to Wisconsin and have time with my friends over there before I cut home. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And early October, what a time of year to be in the upper Midwest. It's fantastic. The weather's getting cool. You know, the landscape is amazing. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, the, I look forward to it as soon as I'm driving home from it, from, you know, the year before it's, uh, you know, that, that ride home is long in and of itself, but it's that much longer when it's over and got to wait another 355 odd days for it. Yeah. You know, I felt that way about any trip I've ever done out west. I've hunted Wyoming and Colorado, and I've been fortunate to be able to, to get to some of those places. Um, also, Nebraska out in the Sand Hills, and it's just something. It's a, something about the place and the people and the opportunity in those wide open spaces, and it's just it just gets inside you. And yeah, the hunting is great; it's fun, but just being in that setting in that amazing place. And, you know, being outdoors and just being able to experience all that, I feel the same way. Like I'm on the way home, you know, you're driving the 20 hours back east and 
dancing through your mind about the next trip. It's always about what's to come. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny to hear you say that because I say the same thing. Like I, I, a lot of people have heard me say it gets in your blood and it, <laughs> it, it does and it stays there. Yeah. And it, when we, when we moved, it, it, that was like the first thing was like, all right, when's camp? Because I'm coming. Because when I lived in Wisconsin, it, 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 my friend who's camp, who had the camp, I mean, we were there Thursday, Friday through Sunday every weekend. Like it, after mm-hmm. about the sixth week in a row of doing that, like we'd text each other on a Tuesday and be like, I'm not really awake, but I'm here because it's just like that grind of leave Thursday night, get there at midnight, hunt for three days till dark on Sunday, drive home, get home Sunday at midnight and just mm-hmm. like do it all over again. But it's, I wouldn't trade those times for, for anything. It was such a, such an awesome time and to be in the woods and have those experiences. You know, it took me a while before I started traveling to get west, like to go to Nebraska or Colorado or Wyoming. But like, once you do it, you're like, wow, why didn't I start this 20 years ago? <laughs> I, you know, it's like I could have been doing this all along, but uh, you just have, you know, life gets in the way and you're in a certain place in life. But once you start, it's uh, it's great. It's like you just want to keep doing it as much as you can and be thankful for it when you when you do it. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, you were talking about uh, going up to Minnesota then and, and up to Wisconsin, maybe doing some work for the Rough Grouse Society while you're up there. So I think that's a pretty cool segue to talk about Rough Grouse Society and your new position and what you're doing down in the Southeast. And so what I think is really cool and what I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing your perspective on is um, just all the, the work that Rough Grouse Society is doing. You're down in the Southeast in North Carolina. You know, for somebody like me that lives up in New York, when I think of grouse, I think of Minnesota. I think of the UP of Michigan and Wisconsin and Maine and, and the Adirondacks. And so it's like intriguing to me that uh, the Rough Grouse Society is active in the Appalachian region and Southeast and th- that you're doing great conservation work down there. So talk a little bit about that and how you got connected with Rough Grouse Society and and what you're up to. Yeah, Um Absolutely. There's, there's so much to talk about there. In terms of how I got connected to, to RGS uh, and AWS, uh, so the American Woodcock Society, so our, our woodcock offshoot as well. Yeah, it's funny. It's, I have to put it back to, to NAVDA. So the NAVDA annual meeting in 2019 was in Minneapolis, and uh, Dr. Ben Jones, our CEO and president, was there. And they had a, a position open in the Northeast at the time, and I'm from the Northeast. And um, I had been really wanting to transition into conservation work full-time for a while. I've been a volunteer for a number of organizations and a number of roles. And uh, it really just said that this is where my passion lies. And this is what I want to be doing with my time. And I, I, through some mutual friends and whatnot, I was able to get connected to Ben and, and said, hey, can we just connect and talk and, and you know figure out, you know, he was brand new at the time. And, and what are you thinking? And where are we going? And, and is there an opportunity for me at some point? And we had a great meeting and obviously me being in, in the Southeast and trying to work in the Northeast isn't feasible, um, but really that was the start of a friendship and, and me volunteering for the organization for the better part of a year and a half, um, really around building affinity for Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society here in the Southeast, particularly around American Woodcock, uh, where I live in the Piedmont of North Carolina is a huge wintering, uh, wintering range and migration uh, spot for American Woodcock on the Atlantic Flyway. And so um, really just kind of stayed in touch and, and helped uh, do some partnerships with 
with NAVDA along the way with the organization. And then obviously I brought up Pheasant Fest earlier. Um, it's amazing to me to look back seven months ago and think about how much four days in Minneapolis changed my life. Uh, but obviously saw <laughs> Ben there and, and reconnected with him just in person and, and talking shop and everything. And really what it came down to is the, the person in the mid-Atlantic who also oversaw the Southeast retired with COVID and that position came open. And I had had a couple other opportunities that were sort of touch and go. And I had another opportunity in the higher ed realm that I was kind of eyeballing. And it just sort of shook out that, that this thing with the Rough Grouse Society uh, came to fruition. And it's a lot of people tell me that I'm crazy to leave the stability of higher education in the middle of a global pandemic to go work for a nonprofit conservation organization. And I would argue that I probably am. Uh, and I, at the same time, I have never worked harder and I've never been happier to show up and turn my laptop on every day and, and work for the organization for a, a resource that, that I love. I mean, I, I, I came to this position because I've been a member of the Rough Grouse Society for over five years and and I believe in the organization and I believe in what we're trying to accomplish. And it, it's really fulfilling to bring bring that type of passion to work. I call it a vocation. It's not simply a, a job for me, which is really makes getting the work done that much easier for me. Um, in terms of what we're working on in the Southeast, yeah, that's, a, that's a tall order. So if I talk too much, cut me off. Um, so first and foremost, rough grouse, while they are prominent in the upper states, you know, the Northeast, the upper Midwest, et cetera, their range extends all the way down the, the Appalachians to North Georgia. Um, and Ben has even worked, he, when he was working on his PhD, worked down here in the Nantahala, the National Forest down here on a, a big grouse study um, a number of years ago. The, the challenge that we have in this region is if we don't, if we don't do something there will be no rough grouse here. And as a, as a conservationist and a, and a student of the North American model and all of the successes that we have, you know, if we think about white-tailed deer, we think about turkeys, um, those are awesome success stories. And I look at rough grouse as, all right, this, we are at the point where if we, if we don't do something, we won't have that success story. Um, and so we, this is, this is it. Um, and I'm, I'm so humbled to be a part of it, um, particularly down here in, in this region. In addition, like I brought up the, the Woodcock piece, so many folks look at Woodcock as a, a byproduct of rough grouse hunting, particularly because of their experiences in the northern states. Whereas down here, Woodcock is a, is a hot item. Um, it's, folks just solely target Woodcock, particularly because they're hunting in the Piedmont and the coastal regions and there are no rough grouse there. We can certainly find woodcock in the mountains, and I have done that. But by and large, they're in a completely different region. And so you're hunting woodcock for the sake of hunting woodcock, which is, is super mm -hmm. fun. And so really leaning into the research around what we're finding for for those birds and how to support them, help increase their efficacy as they migrate and learn more about what that migration looks like, partnered with the University of, of Maine and the uh uh, Eastern Woodcock Migration Study to pull out all sorts of interesting things about what that looks like for them um, and, and really just help support those birds that people think about it as a byproduct, whereas their woodcock are pretty neat in and of themselves. They sure are. Yeah, that's really cool. And a couple of things. Uh, I love what the Rough Grouse Society is up to these days. I think y'all have a great vision. You know, I met Ben uh, maybe a year or two ago. I actually did a podcast with him on my former podcast 
about forestry and the rough grouse society. And like, I just love his vision of thinking in terms of like outside the box and thinking in terms of how to partner up, how to scale conservation. So I'm so excited for you to be a part of rough grouse society. Uh, I think that you're doing such great work. And the thing is, is that that habitat work on the ground, it benefits rough grouse, it benefits American woodcock, you know, and, and your members, but it's like, it benefits everything beyond that too. It's like good habitat work, working forests, healthy forests and mosaics. And so everybody wins. You get so many fringe benefits from, from the work that's being done. You know, uh, it, it's just fantastic. Okay. The other thing, you know, it's really cool. Um, last week I was reading a book. Uh, I'd never read this book before, but there was an old grouse book called, I think it was called Grouse Feathers. It's by Burton yeah, Spiller. Burton yeah, yeah, so like old school, right? This dude was mm-hmm. from Maine. You'll like, you know, he's from New England, like yeah, like us. He's like upper Northeast kind of guy. And he was a phenomenal grouse hunter. And like you read the stories about the old days, like he was in some phenomenal grouse hunting uh, opportunities back then. The, the, you know, the habitat was was shifting, of course, at that point because we have second growth forests up here. It was young forests, and so there was just those were, you know, the glory days of of grouse hunting. And and hopefully, with the work that you're all doing, we can have many better things ahead. You know, one thing that he said in his book that I, I'd never thought of too much, but he was talking about dogs, and he he was saying that. Dogs are versatile, right? But like some dogs are really good on grouse and some dogs are really good on woodcock. But like what he was saying, I think he hunted with pointers, but he was saying that mm-hmm. he, he never had many dogs were, that were like super excellent on both. They were like better on one or the other. <laughs> but uh, have you ever uh, experienced that? You know, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I would say, um, I mean, I'll even use my, my wire hair who I love dearly. Um, she's a better woodcock dog than a grouse dog. Now there are hunts that I have in my mind that when I don't remember them, it'll be my time with grouse, um, that, that she's had for sure. Um, but she, the reason being is that woodcock are so much more tolerant of pressure there. They would rather rely on their camouflage and just sit tight and they're, they're tiny and they just sort of like sink into the ground and they're, they do that sort of curl up and like, you don't see me, I'm not here. Um, and they, and so for a, a bird dog there with a good nose and that nose we're hunting woodcock, they're, yeah, they're just a lot more tolerant of, of that pressure and the dog will be generally closer and whatnot. Whereas, whereas grouse are skittish, you know, everything, everything's trying to eat them and they're always sort of looking over their shoulder for anything. And so for a dog to be able to handle grouse well, it takes a, a dog that's really confident with a really good nose and knows the equation of pressure to space and, and those types of things. Um, and so it's, it is neat. I, and I've been privileged to hunt with a lot of folks with a lot of great dogs and, and some of them, and like you said, some of them have it, some of them don't. And, and some of them learn and grow. I mean, for when I first got into grouse hunting, I, I, I joke that I don't, I didn't know that, that Plexi, my wire hair would ever be able to handle one. Um, just cause mm-hmm. she's got a lot of drive and, and, um, is a lot, a lot of go. Um, she's a really good pheasant dog. You know, she, she likes the tracking work, stuff like that, but she's not, uh, she tends to be less than delicate. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I think with grouse, you need a, you need a dog that understands that balance. Uh, and so that, that certainly is, it can be the case. 
Um, it's, I certainly don't want to talk in generalities or in, in specifics. Um, <laughs> what I say is as long as it makes you happy, take it out there. I don't care. You know, <laughs> yeah. you're hunting over your dog and, and it makes you smile and let it rip. Yeah, that's right. I think that that's such a great perspective on that. I, I totally agree. That's my perspective with hunting in general, I think, is just get out yeah. there and have fun and, and do what you enjoy and hunt your own hunt, be yourself about it and just you do it for your own reasons. So that's, I think that that's really cool advice. So you've hunted birds, you're hunting up in the Midwest. Are there any regional differences? Like you're talking about grouse up in the mountains there down in the mm-hmm. Southeast. And like, so what's, what's cool is for people outside the Southeast, I mean, those mountains are big and you're like, you're up in yeah. these hardwood ridges and our company's based out of Georgia, but every year we have a like a company meeting up in Young Harris, which is like on the North Carolina border. So like yep. up near Hay- Hayesville, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's pretty cool. Like you would think other than the heat and the humidity, it, it's a lot like the Northeast in terms of mountains. But like, what's it like hunting for folks that do hunt in the Southeast? Is that different than what you've experienced up in the upper Midwest? Yeah, in a number of ways it is, and in a few ways it isn't. And so from a uh, from a habitat perspective, it's the same and it's different. Rough grouse and American woodcock are species that are, are almost entirely dependent on early successional habitat and young forests, right? So the zero to 20-year-old forest. Now, they certainly need that, that habitat mosaic. They need the older forests, you know, around them and, you know, for food and, and escape cover and things like that. Um, yep. But they need that that tight sort of area that they can walk around and feel comfortable and safe and not be looking up for avian predators and things like that. So so that type, you know, the stem density is the same. Uh, but down here, we don't have rolling fields of wrist or baseball bat sized aspen as far as the eye can see. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're if you're going to hunt grouse in North Carolina and want to be successful, I would say you're going to want to try to get above 3,500 feet of elevation, 4,000 or better, really, um, and look for high elevation bulbs and hunt the edges of those. Um, or if you're fortunate enough to find places that have had active forest management in the last 10 to 15 to 20 years, uh, also, at those types of elevations, um, you're going to be in the money. Um, mm-hmm. it, and so it, it is different in that um, the elevation and the, the climb is a lot harder. Um, I, there's a, in the bird dog world, there's a lot of talk about chucker hunting out west being the hardest, one of the hardest <laughs> bird hunts. And I, I think that I call grouse hunting in the southern apps the chucker hunting of the east coast. And, uh, and I would argue that a, a bird uh, a bird taken in the southern apps is probably the most earned um and people might give me flack by that but i'll, I'll put a stake in the ground on that one because um, you are you are doing the hiking um and you're also doing it in in early sessional habitat where it's trying to pull you down and trip you and uh you have to weave in and out of and also then try to shoot through uh mm-hmm. so it's uh it's i mean i love all types of bird hunting don't get me wrong but it's there it's a special special thing down here um as well as i mean truly you have to take into account just the the sheer numbers and really lack thereof down here um you know grouse are hurting in the region and we want more of them um and and that's directly tied to the lack of habitat our forests here are mostly single age you know really 
you know, 90 to 110, maybe 80 to 120 year old forest, you know, as far as the eye can see, which is great. And it's beautiful when you're on the Blue Ridge Parkway and you're driving along and it's, and it's stunning. Um, but really what that creates is just a wildlife desert because it is single age. And so it's a, it's a battle that we're fighting here down in the Southern Alps for grouse and woodcock. And, and like you said, so many other species, I mean, even just talk about, talk about songbirds and, and golden wing warblers and cerulean warblers or, or Appalachian cottontails. And even for that matter, white-tailed deer and black bear, the more quality, diverse forests we have and, and early successional habitat, the better off all of those species do. So I think that that is a big difference in the Midwest. If I move three birds in a day where I go over to northeastern Wisconsin, something is very, very wrong, right? Whereas down here, if you move three birds in a day, it's like Christmas. It's a different thing. Um, it is grouse hunting, don't get me wrong. But the way, at least for me, the way that I approach it, it's a different mindset. And it's exciting for me in my role now, the more I talk to particularly younger folks about grouse hunting here in the mountains, a lot of folks look at it uh, with this sense of adventure of in this, like, seeking this thing that is, is ephemeral and is hard to find and in getting out there and, and hoping to experience it. Whereas if you go to the Midwest or the Northeast and you find the right cover, you're going to move birds. That's not a question. It's awesome. I'm glad you brought it up because I feel like I, that's how I feel about it. It's like looking at it from kind of an, a cool adventure standpoint and it's such a unique opportunity and like, I'm glad we talked about this because I think for people outside the region, when you think about all the great hunting opportunities around that, this probably doesn't come up on a lot of people's radar. You know, they're not thinking about a high elevation grouse hunt. But how cool is that? Being up in the mountains and, you know, stretching your legs and just ah, that just resonates with me so much. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds- it sounds like so much fun. And then like what you're talking about with the habitat, I can totally relate because like, you know, I've heard Ben, Ben Jones talk about mosaics, right? And so, I, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm not putting words in his mouth, but like what I understood him to say was we need both like really old trees, but we also need a lot of young trees too. And you need that mosaic in the landscape. You need those ecotones in terms of the edge and from a carrying capacity standpoint. You know, I, I saw a sticker. I, maybe it was like on one of your Instagram posts or something. I, it might not have been you, but I saw a sticker with the Rough Grouse Society that said, little trees need hugging too. And <laughs> Yeah, that's, it probably was mine because it's on my water bottle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that so much, Mike. <laughs> yeah. When I, worked at, when I worked in the university um, and I had that on my water bottle and I'd be in meetings and they'd be like, I hate to be that person, but can you print that so I can see it? And I was like, do not apologize for asking the print paper. <laughs> like, we need to cut trees down because early you know, little trees need love too. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. Up here in New York, we've got Young Forest Initiative, which is pretty cool. And so with with the the state forest, we don't have a lot of federal land in New York, but um, a lot of state land, uh, three million acres of forest preserve in the Adirondacks and and then about 700,000 acres of state forest outside the forest preserve. And so the the Young Forest Initiative is aiming. It's a partnership. It's collaboration with um, our Department of Environmental Conservation. It's with um, Cornell University, SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry, my alma mater. And like what they're trying to do is 10%, you know, so like of the state forests outside the forest preserve where active forest management can occur, 
the wildlife management areas in the state forest are trying to get 10% in young forest um, cover. So that's good stuff. And the other thing I'll say is that what goes under people's radar screens a lot is like up here in the Northeast, um, we have partnerships with a lot of um, private landowners and then private landowners who use conservation easement tools for working forests. And so mm-hmm. I think there's there's something like there's something like a million acres of conservation easement land in the Adirondacks that and that creates a great mosaic in terms of habitat because those are a lot of active forest management. The old paper company lands, you know, the the old yeah. international old international paper and St. Regis and Champion and like there was a culture of that up here in the, and and you know across the Northeast in general. But it's really cool to see how conservation works um, on so many different levels and how complex it can be and the fact that we need partners, you know, on both the the public side, the NGO side, but also on the private side as well. I'm rambling on a little bit, but um, it's, no, I, I agree with you completely. Um, it's, it's what we're, we're working on doing and establishing with the, the new model of forest conservation delivery, um, you know, and, and here in the Southeast, as an example, with our, our recent hire of a forest conservation director. So I totally mm-hmm. understand what you're saying. Yeah, it's good stuff. And so speaking of which, then talk a little bit about that, then what's that initiative all about? Yeah. So um, if folks have followed the Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society, particularly through COVID, it's been a challenge for our organization. Um, and um, Ben has been talking about uh, restructuring for a while. And so, you know, we had had uh, more long-term plans, to my understanding. This happened before I came on staff, but, but really COVID sort of forced the issue. And so we restructured and in a controversial move and let go of our biologist staff and are moving towards this forest conservation director model where each region has a forest conservation director, uh, which is really the player at the chessboard for managing both public and private lands throughout the region for healthy, diverse forests and abundant wildlife from our perspective. And so um, the, one of those those hires was Nick B. Miller, our forest conservation director here in the southeast. is based out of Asheville. He's a, a forester, uh, but but really a wildlife forester and approaches that the work with, with wildlife in mind um, and has just been an excellent partner and really you know, started in June and then four months has really proven that this new model works um, in terms of, of conservation delivery and things that he's got in the hopper. I'm so privileged to have him here in, in my region to be able to work with because I, from an engagement and fundraising perspective, it, the amount of work that he's doing gives me a lot to talk about with folks. And so, for example, you know, we're, we're certainly working on some things with the, the private forestry end. But also, we have in the Pisgah and Nantahala, we have 2 million acres of forest here in, in just in North Carolina, let alone Cherokee, the, the southern range of the, the GW and the Jeff or the, the uh, Chattahoochee and Oconee in Georgia. All of this, this national forest land, as well as the state agency owned and, and run properties. And so he's really hit the ground running. We're working on a number of uh, stewardship agreements. Uh, with the National Forest Service on a on a bunch of, of different forests, you know I've, I've relayed those all out previously. Um, he spent the bulk of his time right when he came on heavily participating and coming up with the Rough Grouse Society's comments for the Pisgah and Nantahala Forest Plan revision. To give you an idea, Todd, so the the Wildlife Resource Commission in North Carolina um, did a giant bird matrix study about habitat and what different birds need across 
across the region in those national forests. And what they, they came out with was that we need nine to 13% of young forests and young forests is zero to 20, 25 years old in this study. And what we have in those two national forests is less than 2%. Yep. Um, and so, so to go from 2% even to nine is a huge jump. And so, so we really put our, our weight behind supporting that and making sure the Forest Service knows that, but also going to the Forest Service and saying, you're a government agency, you know, money and time and resources are a wild card for you. How can we help you? How can we, we work together with you to achieve these goals that are beneficial for you and beneficial for wildlife and beneficial for our membership? And so, you know, we're really rapidly working on getting those stewardship agreements done so we can start doing projects and forest restoration, prescribed fire, uh, and different things on the national forest where it's appropriate to increase habitat and, and increase that diversity. Because like I said, most of most of that habitat is single age on the much, much older end. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's right. And so a couple of things. I mean, for one, I think your model is so cool in the sense that you're, you're turning your organization into an amplifier, right? By by approaching mm-hmm. it, I think there's, there's some um, innovation there, innovative thinking in terms of scaling, um, which is absolutely required. You know, like when you're when you're thinking about conservation and bringing in partners, thinking about what your core strategic strengths are as an organization, and so to be able to be a connect the dotter so to speak, and to be able to bring those stewardship agreements together and engage partners, I think you can get a whole lot more accomplished over time. And, and you know, 9% of young forest cover is no small task, right? I mean, on 2 million acres, that's 180,000 acres of mosaics. It's not, you know, contiguous, but it's just, it's a lot of work. And it requires, mm-hmm. when you think about the the process, um, going through, you know, what it takes to get habitat work done on federal lands in the east. It's it's uh, it's no small task at all. It's it's a big challenge, but it's so cool that you got a lot of partners down there that you can work with and you're looking at it collaboratively to try to get that work done. Yeah, I appreciate that you brought up that word collaboratively. It's part of why for me personally, I feel that I fit so well with the society is that that I I've had great conversations with Lantani about this. It was DHA. I look at conservation as rising tide lifts all ships. And so, mm-hmm. how do we help each other accomplish our goals? This isn't a competition. This is about the resources and the wildlife in our public places. How do we make this work for for everything that we're after? Um, and, and and for here in the southeast, I keep bringing up woodcock. What's good for woodcock is good for quail down here, and vice versa. So mm-hmm. how do we work together with Quail Forever and the things in the, the National Bob White Coalition? How do we all work together to to support these birds and, and other wildlife that obviously benefit from these things? Um, it's fantastic, and and it's and then again, it's neat to see that you know we we implement this new model, and right off the bat, you know we're trucking right along where we should be, and arguably um, doing it faster than we anticipated. So it's exciting. I'm I'm. Very interested to see what this will look like as the years go forward, and we keep building this machine. Yeah, I'm excited too. And and you know, I had this conversation with Ben last year, but um, you know, I started my conservation career 
in the private sector. I worked for um, international paper company in Pennsylvania uh, for about 10 years. And I was on the buying side, you know, I was, so I was in, um, uh, in procurement and I was buying low grade wood for paper mills in Erie PA and over in Tawanda in Bradford County in the endless mountains. Where I'm going with this, Mike, is there's a connection to like when you think about the collaboration, there's a connection between markets and conservation that a lot of people miss sometimes too. And like, so we were mm -hmm. a market that was like buying um, half a million tons a year of, of Aspen and of like low grade hardwood, um, which, you know, was improving uh, forests through like silviculture, which is like the art of establishing and tending forests. Um, mm -hmm. But like we, we were doing, I was, we were buying, like 15% of our wood is where I'm going with this was coming off the Tioga State Forest in the in the Grand Canyon section of um, Tioga County, northern PA. And that was creating some great grouse habitat, <laughs> you know, like you Absolutely. Know, the, the ability to be able to move that wood, to be able to do that habitat work, you know, was was helping out a lot. So it's, it's something that Ben and I were talking about that. And like, I was really excited to hear him thinking in terms of like acknowledging the market end of things as a, as a partner and like f thinking thinking in terms of like how it can be scaled how everybody can work how, you know those win-win situations so I, I was really impressed with the thought process there with rgs it's pretty cool hey mm -hmm. what do you think let's jump back to dogs really quick for people like me you know i think we were talking before we started recording but like i've, I've had dogs uh, but not bird dogs. And so I, I grew up in a hunting family. I've been hunting my whole life. Uh, but like my hunting journey was more around deer, which is very common up here in the Northeast. And mm -hmm. so like when we were kids, we had beagles and we hunted snowshoe hares. And that's an exciting thing all in itself. But I, I never had a lot of exposure to bird dogs. And so like I consider myself kind of almost like an adult onset um, upland hunter, you know, as, as funny as that sounds like for me being, yeah. you know, having hunted for 30 years, but it's kind of true. Um, I, I hunt grouse, but like without a dog. And so I, I kind of stumble through all that. But for somebody that's just, you know, maybe you're looking for like a dog, you, you want to kind of get into bird hunting, you want to get into bird dogs. In, in your experience with the dog, what advice would you have, Mike, in terms of like somebody that just like is getting their feet wet with how do I go about finding a bird dog that's right for me and my family and my situation? I'm happy to answer that. I, and I, and I, it's funny that you bring up your story. I would, I would classify myself as an adult onset bird hunter too. I mean, I didn't, <laughs> didn't have a bird dog until I was 25, 26, something like that. And, uh, and I had to, to, to learn this whole new thing. Um, you know, and the, the deer hunting background certainly helps, but it, it is vastly different in terms of, in terms of like where to start, I would say don't don't do what I did, which was what dog can I get my hands on the fastest? Um, mm -hmm. and, and I I lucked out, and I, you know she's a, a great dog, and and love having her, and and she's currently asleep next to me, dreaming and kicking into the air, um, just making sure that she's all right. Uh, but she, uh, <laughs> you know, it, I would say don't do that, and there for a number of reasons. I think it's important to. They're going to be a part of your life for 10, 12, 15 years. And so that's a big decision. And so you want something that is compatible with who you are and, and your lifestyle and what you have access to. You know, I got a, a German wire here and I lived in an apartment on campus. Uh, there are a lot of people that would tell you that I was nuts. 
mm-hmm. but I had a lot of time and passion and we did a lot of walks and I was training for half marathons at the time and you know a tired dog is a good dog and I I sort of lived that as long as I could and I'm remembering that now that I have this 15 week old hellion to go with it um (laughs) you know i think that but if you if you can see dogs in multiple breeds and get an idea for what interests you you can certainly post online and the facebook groups and things and and a lot of people are going to have opinions and there's a there's some truth in each of those opinions but also there's lots of grains of salt i think i go back to navda uh, as an opportunity and NAVDA, at its heart, I wish we would storytell better around this, NAVDA is a mentoring organization for bird dog folks, start to finish, from, from I want to, I'm interested in getting a dog all the way through, I have this dog and I want to train it to do X, Y, and Z, how do I do that, you know, to, to the finished dog piece? And so I tell folks a lot, if you don't have a dog, come to a training day. Um, find it, find one in the area for you in the Adirondacks. There's a bunch of chapters around there. Um, they're really good chapters with a lot of different types of dogs. So, so go there and talk to folks and see their dogs and see what you like and what you don't. Um, because they are, they are different. And, you know, some run really big. Some run pretty close. Some handle certain things better than others. And, and that is really, would really be really where I would start. And then, and then I think you need to start looking more closely at temperament and fit. Um, and that really then boils down to the parents. So for example, like I have this puppy here, I trained the female that she came out of from a very young dog. Um, and I saw a lot of things in that dog that I really, really liked. And, um, and she actually, this, this puppy is a lot like her mother, um, both in, both in looks and just her personality in that she uh she's pretty adventurous and she will find trouble but when you let her know that's trouble she's very like oh cool boundary got it i'm good mm-hmm. um and that's what i what i like and and i think that for you as a new person if you can see the parents of the dog that would be obviously the best but the more you can see and experience and then find a community where you can be mentored whether that's through a navda or another club or a or a dog trainer the better. Um, and then really, the really tailor that to what's important to you. Yeah, that that's great advice. And, you know, just like in so many other situations where if you're new to something, finding a community to get involved with and finding some people that can help you, your suggestion about going to like a training session is just awesome. And then your observations about the dog themselves. Um, I think that that's really helpful. I appreciate that. Um, you know, for us, it's funny. It's like, you know, we've always had family dogs and I want a bird dog mm-hmm. and you get into your mind, the dogs that you're so drawn to. And I'm like looking at, oh, you know, I've been online looking at English setters and Brittany's mm-hmm. and Cocker Spaniels and the wire hairs. And they're just, those dogs are just so beautiful. They're so smart. And, but ultimately it's like finding the right balance for what works for you. Right. And, and, um, seeing the parents, you know, getting around some people that know what they're doing to help you out. So I, I, I definitely appreciate that. And that I know the yeah. listeners will and, as well. And having, know. yeah, I think the other part of that too, is having it, as you narrow down breeders, having an on, honest conversation with them about what you want. I mean, I'm pretty in it, right? Like I'm a NAVDA judge and I train a lot and I hunt a lot. And, and it's, it's my primary thing. I went from somebody that deer hunted a ton to now I try to 
put the first deer in the freezer that I can so I can go back to bird hunting. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and now, uh, really the dog thing has taken over. So I'm, I'm, I'm more capable and I can handle a, maybe a hotter dog, if you will. And, and I'm just more used to that. Whereas if you only bird hunt every now and then, and mostly the dog's going to be at home, I think that's important to have that conversation with your breeder. This is what I'm looking for. And, and a good breeder will tell you whether or not what they have is for you. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Good stuff. Um, you know, one thing I also want to touch on is uh, Hunt to Eat. So you recently became a Hunt to Eat ambassador, which is great. What a cool community. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was a Hunt to Eat ambassador for many years. And so I, I love the whole community. Um, I am thrilled with the opportunity. Like, I, I, I think I became a Hunt to Eat ambassador around 2000. 16 or 17 and watching the community grow and looking at Mating's vision in terms of inclusivity for everybody and community is it's just been great and so I recently you know it's funny um, that's the only ambassador role that I've ever played and and I'm thankful for it and and I recently stepped back I was thinking like hey I want to give somebody else the opportunity like there's so many people out there that can be a great cross section of hunting and great ambassadors. And like, I want to give somebody a role like that opportunity to experience the great positive uh, experience that I had with it. You know, so it's like one of those things where that was kind of a hard decision for me, but like, so like, how did you find hunt to eat and what are you excited about with being an ambassador and being part of that community? A lot. Um, so I, I found hunt to eat, as a brand, if you will, um, I think way back in the day when, when it was Motting and Giannis together and, and Giannis was plugging it on the Meat Eater podcast, you know, for that, that short period of time. And so I had that, that type of brand awareness started following along. And, and what I've always appreciated about the company is their support for conservation organizations. And, and as a, as a, at the time of volunteer conservation nut, um, I, I appreciated their, their slant towards maybe younger, more form fit, you know, t-shirts and things that I would want to wear. And Martin talks about that all the time, right? Like I wanted to, to mm -hmm. create stuff that I wanted to wear. And I appreciated that, but also this, this commitment in today's, today's day and age, we see a lot of these, these small businesses popping up, which is excellent. But I'm always, for me, I'm, I always gravitate towards the one, that are taking a part of that and contributing it elsewhere. And I think that that's what really drew me to Hunt to Eat as a, as a consumer was their support for BHA or TRCP, um, the partnership with, with Randy Newberg. I mean, I wear that green decoy shirt far too often. I probably need to order another one. So I have one that doesn't look, <laughs> look as, as worn. Um, and that was really how I found them was through their, their partnerships with these other conservation organizations. And it, it made me love the brand and, and how I got involved is I brought up Pheasant Fest earlier, which is just so ridiculous for me. I, so I went to Pheasant Fest this year. I volunteered to help at the NAVDA booth and I gave a talk there and I've just met so many people that I connect, like I clicked with and just had great conversations with. And I, um, I was with some of the Project Upland guys and they were talking to my thing and I was wearing I think I was wearing my green decoy shirt and, uh, and I made the comment to Monting. I said, I said, now that I think about it, 
in my suitcase is five t-shirts and all of them are hunt to eat t-shirts i did not <laughs> yeah um and then he uh and that was right when he had brought out the the short hair t-shirt and so he was mm-hmm. like hey here like hey what's your size and i and gave me one and i was like oh thank you know i'll wear it this weekend yep. and, and and everything and and just talking more uh with him about things that were going on and then eventually he he just reached out to me after that and said hey i've I really like what you're doing and your message and how you interact with folks would love for you to, to consider joining the ambassador team. And, and, and that just blew my mind. I've never been asked to do anything like that before. And um, I was just so humbled at the opportunity and then to, to get in with the ambassador folks and, you, you know, Todd and you, you talked about it. It is such an incredible community, the 30 or so of us that are ambassadors of inclusion and, in like conversation about big ideas that are trying to move conservation forward. I, it's, I feel so spoiled to, to be a part of that and to have this extended family that that's tied to this brand that I, that just deeply resonates with me. Um, you know, going forward, it, it's, it's excellent uh, to, to really be a part of, I mean, you had Justin on recently and it's funny, him and I have a mutual friend that I've done some diversity, equity, inclusion work with that's not in the hunting and angling space at all. And uh, so it's, it's really neat to see you know, the, the community, real food and conservation. Um, it, you know, those those three values are readily apparent in the brand and, and are even more apparent in the community. Mm-hmm. And uh, it really is humbling for me to be included in that and to the relationships that I've been able to build because of that and you know i i I worry about the term like-minded but as as somebody that's leaned into a little bit the diversity equity and inclusion conversation that we've been having in the outdoor spaces recently it's really nice to have a supportive group around that that you can talk about ideas and are like-minded in that way when as a as a straight white male Mm-hmm. Candidly, I, I've all I've worried about my ability to have those types of conversations, and particularly in the hunting community. And so it's it's just a, such an alignment of values that is, is really uh, striking for me. That's so cool. I, I I've always felt the same way. And if I thought about like a word to describe hunt to eat, it's community. And you, you know, so like yes, they're great T-shirts, and yes, they're you know, the, the messaging is positive and like they're comfortable to wear. But the one thing that I've always admired with Mating and the ambassadors, um, you hit it on the head. I mean, I, I don't really have anything to say other than like what you've said, which is more eloquent than what I'm saying. But like the, the community there is really inspiring and they're willing to have those conversations. Those those diversity, equity, inclusivity conversations are so important to the outdoors and so like and and so many people aren't are, are still like hesitant to have those conversations for various reasons but i i'm just thrilled and so proud of hunt to eat for just like stepping up and showing some leadership and saying yeah we're, we're going to have these conversations because they need to be had so mm-hmm. i i've always been proud to support that and proud to have been a, an ambassador for as long as i was and i hope that yeah. like i i know that moving forward that that will continue on you know, the, the, the diversity equity conversation, you're coming into conservation. I think you have like a really cool vantage point from being in higher ed. 
and the importance of that in higher education and your experience professionally there. And so to be able to bring that to the conservation table and like have that experience and to be able to, I, I just think it's really a, a great skill set to have. And I'm, I'm thankful that you're having those conversations and, and opening the doors for more people to do it. Oh, thank you. Uh, I really appreciate that. It's, it's, it's sort of just my outlook on this. Is I care about I care about this thing so much that I want the more people, the better. And 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 we all know that in the, particularly the hunting space, right? From a hunter recruitment, retention, and reactivation perspective. Um, but the the fact of the matter is, you know, you look at higher ed recruitment and enrollment. What we find is that, that higher ed institutions struggle when folks of color or LGBTQIA communities, et cetera, if they don't see themselves in an institution, then then their likelihood that they're going to join that institution is slim. And so mm-hmm. I look at hunting and angling the same way. If if those communities don't see themselves in hunting and fishing, um, they're not going to, going to participate in them. And so how do we open doors and create spaces where those folks feel comfortable and, and want to join? I mean, it's, there's a high threshold resistance, right? Like you just talk about, you asked about getting a puppy. There's so many questions that you could ask about getting a puppy and what breed and, and all of mm-hmm. those types of things um, and where to go um, and the, the resources and the funds involved. I was texting with a friend this morning and I got that. Well, I would have one if I didn't, you know, if I had <laughs> the couple thousand dollars to outlay and have them be trained <laughs> to where they want to be. Right. Um, yep. And and that's that's fair. Um, there, it's, it's resource intensive. And does it, do you need to spend that amount of money? No. Um, you know, it depends on what level of expectation that you have. But mm-hmm. that that type of conversation applies to so many different things, and it doesn't. You know, it's, it's grouse. And people might, some people might disagree with me on this, but grouse hunting doesn't have to be what we normally see, right? Which is sort of the the very nice shotgun and well tailored hunter and their their pointer mm-hmm. or their setter and this aesthetic um you know that is you know that burton spiller type stuff i mean that's why it's attractive yep. to read that type of stuff is this 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 thing in your mind's eye um mm-hmm. you know it can be ripped jeans and work boots and a meat dog uh, mm-hmm. and, a, and a pump shotgun um yep it's in it in it for for particularly for those you know for the folks in in the northern tier states it's right out your back door or for here in the southern apps it's a, it's an easy opportunity as long as you're willing to hike it's an adventure that's readily accessible on public land to a lot of folks it, it doesn't have to be the the scotch and the cigar or the pipe and, and those types of things and if that floats your boat great don't get me wrong mm-hmm. but i if growing up in deer hunting right I've, i'm well versed in the rifle versus muzzle loader versus archery versus crossbow arguments and we have those same types of things in the in the bird dog world and for me i'm like hunt however you want to hunt and whatever you want to hunt with as long as it's legal and ethical and, and does right by the resource yeah absolutely amen to that and uh you know it's funny like i still hunt with a pump shotgun i have an old ithaca model 37 featherweight it's a 16 gauge nice it's like old as the hills. My, it was my grandfather's and it's like the only thing mm-hmm. is my mom's dad's and it's the mm-hmm. only thing I have of, of his stuff. And uh, I 
love that shotgun. Like I have shown up to five stand shoots with that thing. And I know people look at me kind of funny, but I don't even care. No. You know, like all these, all these folks have their nice over and unders and I want an over and under too. Don't get me wrong, but uh, I'm, I'm pulling sure. in there with my old, my old pump shotgun and, and still breaking some plays. So it's, it's fun. Yeah. And- <laughs> I'm, I'm that way with my, with my grandfather's a five. Um, it's the same. The same mm-hmm. for me. They are old and battered and, and are well used. Uh, I mean, yep. he was a he was a uh, carpenter and a machinist, and and tools were meant to be used. And and his A5 show it. But I love. I try to take each one of them out for at least one hunt a year, and it is so special for me. And it, but that's the last thing you think of hunting grouse and woodcock, <laughs> right? Is, is lugging around this giant humpback A5 through the woods. Yep. <laughs> uh, but it, it, for me, it, it, it means something. And so I do it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that, Mike. That sounds cool. So, uh, hey, so what do you think? There's so much more to talk about, but we could, we'll have to do some more podcasting, you know, on, on dogs. And as your dog grows, as Mac grows, I'd love to just have a conversation about her journey and her progress. Um, and of course. How you're, yeah, how you're doing with that. Um, what do you think in terms of concluding thoughts? Um, to the conversation, anything you want to plug in terms of what we've talked about or a rough grouse society or anything like that. Yeah. I'll, I'll also add to the agenda for later. So the, on our agenda that you sent me, we were going to talk about fishing and we didn't talk about fishing at all. So, so, uh, so cover, just give us the, uh, the, like the three minute drill on, on fishing and why you love driftless fishing so much. I love your pictures about fishing up in the driftless. Area, uh, it's, oh, that's like, I have such a, I was just there and was fishing on Monday <laughs> and I was having this conversation with a friend I was fishing with. I'm like, there, I used to be such a rambler as a younger person and like, I can go anywhere and live anywhere. And then I moved, I left Wisconsin and I was like, why did I do that? Like I had it all right here. Um, but maybe, maybe I'll, maybe I'll get there someday. Um, so the driftless area is Southwest Wisconsin and it's, um, very, very hilly. Um, I wouldn't call it mountainous compared to like here in the Southern Alps, um, or up by you in the Adirondacks, but, um, it basically the glaciers missed that area. And so there is a lot of rolling topography there. And there's a lot of cold water trout streams and the community, you talk about conservation, the community has really embraced the conservation ethic around these trout streams. There's a ton of conservation easements, but also in Wisconsin from a stream access perspective, if you can get your feet wet, you can fish. And so, so these farmers in the area around there, you know, they build in fence crossings for anglers in, in their cattle fencing and, and different things. And so there's just so much opportunity um, and it, it is a little bit like stepping back in time it is old, um, dairy and beef cattle farms and, and a lot of ag, but, but very well taken care of streams. Um, and it, it, there's open spaces. You can actually get out there and, and cast a rod and, um, and there's, there's some big fish. I mean, I, I, uh, had normally been catching, you know, sort of hand size to, to 10 inch rainbows and browns on my driftless trips. And then, uh, when I was up there, when I, picked the little demon up um i ended up landing two 14 inches and a 15 inch brown trout on my my three weight and i was just floored wow um, and so it's just uh it's it's a place that, that since i've left i try to get back at least once a year to wet a line and um it, part of it is the place and part of it's the people uh but it's it's so wonderful i mean you, know, you compare that too to down here 
I've, I've really, particularly with COVID, leaned into fly fishing down here a lot. It's just been a, particularly when it happened and the timing, it was an opportunity to get outside and socially distance. And so we I've really spent a lot of time honing my craft on, on Appalachian brook trout and in our streams. But we're in the mountains, so it's a lot steeper. It's a lot of pocket water. There really isn't a lot of room to lay out a good a good cast. It's a lot of roll casts and um, you know bow and arrow shots and and really high sticking through pools. Um, but it's it's yep. awesome fishing just the same. Um, it's just a, a different style. And for me, um, it's part of why I like grouse and woodcock is that they're native species. You know they they've been here and hopefully through our work they will remain to be here. And so for me there is something special about native brook trout regardless if they're you know the size of my fingers um you know or bigger i think that there it's always neat to to be connected to a species that has been here for ages yeah uh, and, so I've, and, I've and, and what they're emblematic them. of yeah right of yeah. what they're emblematic of of the wild spaces and i feel the same way it's like the experience mm-hmm. behind it and i've been fishing a lot too this year with COVID and uh, I'm, I'm a very mediocre fly angler. Like I, you know, like I, I'm Me okay too. at it, but like I am yeah. no, no expert, but I've been fly tying, which has been wonderful. Uh, that's just something, you know, you can do at lunchtime, you can do after work, you can have a sip of bourbon and just, you know, that's been cool too. I've just, I've really enjoyed that. And I've been tying a bunch of actually like not only trout flies, but like, uh, well, a bunch of pike flies and bass flies, poppers, nice. anything like that, deceivers and clousers and stuff yep. like that. And it, the fun part is just going down that path and sharing them with friends and like experimenting mm-hmm. with different things. It's just been, a, it's been a fun journey. So, well, Hey, listen, I, this is a great conversation and, uh, I really appreciate your time. I've, thankful for all the great work that you're doing um, at Rough Grouse Society. I'm excited about the work ahead and I'm looking forward if you're up in the Northeast or next time I'm down your way, we got to connect at some point. Um, Absolutely. Next year we'll be back in, um, in young Harris up there on the North Carolina border. So I'll give you a shout next time I'm in, in that neck of the woods. Yeah. If if bird seasons aren't open, then we'll at least have to get the fly rods out and go somewhere. All right, Mike. Sounds good. Thanks for being on the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you again so much for having me, Todd. I really appreciate it. Okay. So what a great conversation with Mike Nadusky from Rough Grouse Society, sharing all of his great knowledge about bird dogs and about grouse hunting and woodcock hunting, both up in the upper Midwest and also down in the Southern Appalachians. Uh, What a fun conversation. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I learned a bunch from Mike, and I think you will too. And following along with the upland hunting theme here, um, if you have not checked out the Modern Carnivores podcast Grouse Camp series, there's parts one and two where Mark uh, was at the Grouse Camp in northern Wisconsin a few weeks ago, and he's talking uh, with a bunch of great people Um, Go over and check that out. Be sure to give those a listen. You'll be glad you did. Mark, anything you want to share on on the grouse camp as as part of that while we're here? No, I mean, I think like you said, it was just a lot of fun meeting a lot of new hunters and hunting mentors and having them share their stories about why they've gotten into hunting, what are the joys of it, and uh, specific to uplands. So yeah, check it out, parts one and two uh, over on the other podcast. 
Yeah, the enthusiasm and the energy and the excitement around upland hunting is evident when you listen to these stories. So many great individuals, so much community coming around habitat and about the birds and the bird dogs and the people. Um, it's it's great stuff. I'm glad you got a chance to go over there and be you know to experience that with so many cool people. Um, so you know, thanks for listening, everybody, and we look forward to uh, rolling out some more great content here soon. Thanks for listening to the Outdoor Feast Podcast. You can check out our other podcast and more at modcarn.com.